This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, is managing a team like conducting a jazz orchestra? Gerald Leonard is the CEO of the consultancy Principles of Execution, and he also is the author of a book called Symphony of Choices. He shares his tips on how we can be more aware and pay attention to how we're leaders and mentors in our lives and how we can influence others in a positive way and send them on their way better off than when we met them. Handy Andy Barrar joins us here on The Shift to help us with some fall gardening and how to clean it up if we're done or if you're in a climate zone that still has some growing to do, which is not everywhere, what to do next, composting and more, plus a look at the future of AI-generated music with Handy Andy as well. And are you okay with going to the dentist and with refunds? All of this and more on The Shift Daily Podcast. This is The Shift Podcast. Every now and then you go into a conversation and you don't really know where it's going to go. And this was exactly that. There's a book that came out and all of the, the book promo people did their thing. A Symphony of Choices, How Mentorship Taught a Manager Decision Making, Project Management and Workplace uh, Engagement. Now, that seems like a really long title for a book. I feel like it kind of rolls over the side, like when you run out of too much room on a birthday card. Uh, but that that was where I got curious. I was like, oh, mentorship. This is a cool conversation. I want to meet Leonard. And that's really what it unfolded to. And this is where we have landed on all of this. To all my friends listening to The Shift, uh, this is Gerald Leonard. And here we are uh, getting ourselves into a conversation about mentorship. So uh, you've been a busy guy, Mr. Leonard. and you uh, Yes, been, I have. Uh, yeah, you've been out and about doing things and even learning more things since we planned this. So since mentorship really is the core, and since, yep. you know, since the book uh, really is how it was introduced to us, why don't we start there, Gerald, and let's let's understand what you've been up to and, and why this matters to you. What is the symphony of choices? Well, a symphony of choices is about mentorship. And so, and uh, Sean, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here uh, and have this conversation with you. Um, mentorship is all about making a difference. And, you know, a tagline I've come up with or a way I've, I've been able to explain it, what the value that I see in mentorship is that mentorship and coaching are like being on the HOV lane or the express lane on a highway. You know, when everybody else is stuck in traffic and by themselves, running out of gas, engine getting hot, ha having a frustrating commute home, if you have that one person within you in the car and that one person knows a little bit more than you do about what you're trying to do, you you have access to the HOV lane. Mm -hmm. and that And if you get the right one person, they can actually help you go from here to there in a matter of 15 minutes where everyone else has taken two hours or their whole lifetime trying to get somewhere, they can help you get there in a minute. I get that. And I feel like that really connects with me. I think that's really great. I have a writing piece about mentorship and coaching and I'll bounce it off you here that I think that will land for you because the, the metaphor that you give there, I think is perfect. Right. It's beautiful. I've never heard that before. So uh, a coach, it's the coach's agenda and the student fulfills the coach's agenda. A mentor, a mentor teaches the student and the mentor fulfills the student's agenda. Agenda And leadership just goes. So to your point in the HOV lane, see the cool part is, is if the coach is in the car and the student's in the car, well then 
the coach or the student is taking the coach where the coach needs to go. If the mentor is in the car with the student, the mentor is going with the student where the student needs to go. And I think that's an incredibly beautiful look at just the, the, the minute difference between a coach and a mentor. How does that land for you? Yes, exactly. And you know, what's beautiful about that again is, you know, a mentor is someone who has set the example and have been there many, many times and you really need to catch who they are. I mean, they can, you know, you can read up on them and they can talk to you. But when you have a, 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 an amount of time that you can sit with someone in a conversation and pick up on their energy and and and, and catch where they're going and catch why they are who they are, um, a lot of our character, a lot of the, the nuances of who they are can be caught. It really cannot be taught. It has to be caught. With a coach, the goals of the coach is to ask you questions to get you to think about what you're trying to do. But either way, in both of those examples, you have somebody with you. Mm -hmm, and you in do. both of those examples, they're going to help you move forward faster than if you were just working by yourself trying to figure it out. Because as Einstein says, the thinking that got us in the mess that we're in is not going to be the thinking that's going to take us to where we need to be. Exactly. I love that. Okay. I love the taught and caught things. You're inspiring me here because to me, taught and caught really is presence and listening. Like you have to be there willing to catch the ball. If someone's going to throw the ball to you, they can throw the ball all day. But if you're not looking and you're not willing to catch the ball, the throw of the ball really doesn't matter because it's just a ball getting thrown away. But if you're exactly. willing to pay attention and listen to what someone can offer you, that's where the magic starts to happen. I mean, think about it this way. As kids, we're mentored and coached by our parents for 18 years. Yeah. But that first six to seven to 12 years, it we we actually take on their personalities in some form or fashion. Now, around 12 years old, we start rebelling and doing things mm -hmm. because we want to become our own person. That's when we think it's a dictatorship, not a coaching <laughs> mentor scenario, right? Exactly. But think <laughs> about it from, from zero to around that age, everything that you really learn yeah, your parents teach you things, but guess what? You learn by what they do. You learn by what you see because we all have something called mirror neurons. Even animals have this, you know, you have lions and they have cubs. How does a lion cub learn how to be a lion? It's because of mirror neurons and the way they watch the parent, the, the older lions go out and hunt and so on. Same thing with us. If we want to go to that next level, we need to be around people who are going to help us to get there. You know, one of my friends, our coaches, uh, Les Brown says, only quality people. When you surround yourself with only quality people that are above you and you spend time with them because you have mirror neurons and they're going to uh, share their energy with you, you're going to be impacted. You're going to be inspired. You're going to change. You're going to see a difference. And it's going to take you further than you were by yourself. And that's the whole goal of the book is that Jerry in the book finds Dr. Richardson, who has, who's a professor and all these decisions around decision-making or disciplines around decision-making, project management and workplace engagement. And he learns across the table, having coffee with them on a regular basis, about how to do this new job that he finds himself in as a musician being the orchestra manager and allowed him to save the concert season. So if somebody could just accept that they were learning automatically, their brain is doing what their brain is doing, their soul is doing what their soul is doing. Imagine if you could be intentional about it, how far it would go. 
if it's happening exactly. automatically, but then you actually poured yourself into it, you could go anywhere. And that's for anybody's job. Anybody who's listening, who uh, drives a truck or does delivery or with their partner at home, or maybe they're in a team scenario in a retail, when you surround yourself in time with the people that really are pushing things forward, that A, I mean, it's the product of your environment scenario that everyone talks about, but B, you will automatically start to pick up the nuances of those people even before you're intentionally starting to be inquisitive and ask questions. Yeah, exactly. And here's nice. what's important is that science says we become like the five people that we spend the most time with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the question is, who are you spending time with? Uh, Ryan O'Donnell, my content producer. That's why I'm spending with mostly. I am becoming like Ryan O'Donnell. Uh, he has, so he's a millennial. Uh, I know that you emailed with Ryan, um, but Ryan's a millennial and he's an expensive friend because now I buy sneakers like he does. So that's okay. He's exactly. teaching me. He teaches me that guy. <laughs> and here's something else I learned this weekend that uh, that I was reminded of uh, in a in a program I was a part of. What you tune into is what you turn into. So that's going to scare my listeners away, Gerald. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, it's a good opportunity, though, to say that uh, your Productivity Smarts podcast is very good, and it's on there as well. So what else are you up to? Because this, I mean, as a notion, I mean, I'm, I'm going to pick your brain for days about all things mentorship, but maybe it helps us get there if you tell us what else you're up to. Because you do have the podcast, and then you have the business part of it, too. So, yes, I have the podcast. I have three books. You know, the latest book is a symphony of choices. Two other books are cultures, the bass and workplace jazz. And I can, you can hear the musical metaphors in there. And I'm starting to work on my fourth book, which is going to be based on a lot of the content of the, of the podcast. Um, and, but a lot more details with some musicianship around it called productivity smarts. Mm -hmm. At least that's the kind of working title of it. Uh, I have two companies, uh, Turnberry Premier and Leonard Productivity Intelligence Institute, where I develop courses and write content that engages or, or integrates productivity, workplace engagement, and neuroscience. Because once you understand the science behind why we do what we do, um, I had the pleasure of learning from a lady named Judith Glazer before she passed away, unfortunately, in 2019. And she wrote a book called um, culture, uh, a conversational intelligence. Mm. She wrote a book called Conversational Intelligence, and it was about the the neuroscience of conversations. I did a webinar with her, and then I did a two year program training course with her to get a certification in conversational intelligence. And the biggest thing I learned was that our conversations are much more chemical than they are verbal. Mm -hmm. When you're having a conversation, if it's positive your brain and the person that is listening's brain is producing oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin. In other words, all of these positive neurochemicals. But if you're having a conversation and it's not going well and there's some resistance, that's because your brain and the other person's brain is producing cortisol and adrenaline. And that's why after the conversation, you're like, oh, that, that didn't go well. You're, you're, you know, I'm having a pain in my neck or my shoulders are hurting or I feel a little stress right now. It's because emotional experiences and conversations are full of neurochemicals. So based on how you manage your conversation will determine on if you really enjoy that experience or not. Yeah. I have a new piece that I'll share with you that I just recently wrote was one of my favorite people uh, is Simon Sinek. I love his writing. And yes. and he, uh, he had a social post. He talked about how actions speak louder than words. And I 
I it was the first time that I went, whoa, that's actually not right. And I and I, when I say actions speak, do not speak louder than words. I am in no way saying that words are louder than actions. I'm not saying that. But what I say is, is that actions happen and we need the words to interpret the actions. We need the words to interpret the feelings we have after the actions have happened. So actions can't speak louder than words because it's words that allow us to process it, be with it, share it and understand what happened. So right. they can be as loud as words, but actions to me, actions cannot speak louder than words because without the words, we can't interpret it, be with it, process it and experience it. Exactly. Exactly. If you think about this, there's a good book out there without giving a name of it that says uh, life and death is in the tongue. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, whatever we say, we are we can either bring life and, and literally take a life force and put it in someone or we can speak in a way that hurts them. Because when when when, it, you know, the, you always hear sayings like, oh, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That mm -hmm. is not true. Mm -hmm. right oh, yeah. Words what, put in the right way. Words can be the right person. Words are weapons, be, my friend. Can be a weapon yeah. and, and detrimental. It's Love like it. a doctor telling you, you know, you have a terminal illness. Mm -hmm. They're kind of they're kind of putting that on you. What they should be saying is my knowledge is terminated on how to help you get better. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I love this. OK, so when we go through all this, Gerald, we've got what becomes an opportunity to share this with people. And I think that one thing, if we were to break this down into everybody's lives every day who's with us right now, you know, we the we don't fancy ourselves as mentors. We don't. We were like, nah, I'm not that guy. I'm not the leader guy, right? I'm not that guy that people are following. I promise you, somebody somewhere is following you. Oh, somebody yeah. is, whether you know it or not. So how do we go with that person who doesn't know that they're actually a mentor? How do we inspire them to feel like, well, yeah, yeah, people are following you. They are absolutely paying attention to you, whether you know it or not. How do we empower those people? We do what you just did. You tell them. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you, you let people you know. You literally have to say, hey, you're leading this or you're in the leadership role. We're watching you. Mm -hmm. Because once you realize as a person that you're in the fishbowl and everybody can see you swim around and see what you do, because when you're a leader, you're not just a leader at the job or in your organization, you're a leader in life. So people see you coming and going. They see you on social media. They see you uh, at, at church or in the synagogue or wherever you go for worship. They see you at the ball game, and they're watching how you respond because what they want to see is authenticity. They want to see you being consistent in any environment that you're in. And the best leaders are, are really authentically who they are. Their message is who they are. It's not something that they actually have to put on. It's something that just comes out because that's who they are. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's, that's one of the things that's, that's really critically important is that leaders have to realize that they're setting the tone, whether they're doing the right thing or not. Yeah. Well, and, and there's the incidental leaders where you're in a parking lot, Little old lady drops her groceries. Uh, young man, young woman walk up and help pick up the groceries. You see this unfold. Right. Um, 
that is that's one of those moments where you could thank them or whatever but take that with you and share it with other people because you could go you know what it, it look you can acknowledge it if, if you would never have thought of stopping it's okay it's not right or wrong um is it beneficial to stop and help the little old lady? I would say it is, but that, you don't have to beat yourself up over it. I would never have thought of that, but if it did inspire you and say, you know what, next time I see that, that was really cool to see. I'm going to help the next little old lady that drops her groceries or whatever. Right. Share that with people and create it for yourself and be able to do that. That's like incidental leadership when people don't, you know, you just see the, someone hold the door open for somebody and you're like, Oh, hold the door open. Never thought of that. Right. Exactly. Like those things happen every day in our lives. We don't we don't call that mentorship and leadership, though, Gerald. I know we don't call that mentorship and leadership, but it's setting an example. Yeah. It's people setting an example. It's almost the beautiful, most beautiful part, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We have people setting an example just because they're trying to do the right thing. And again, that is something that comes from within. That's not something that they're trying to put on the outside that, hey, you know, someone's watching me. So let me pick up this piece of trash or right. let me help this lady with their groceries. Ooh. It's you're doing it because you sincerely see a need and you want to help. Yeah. When nobody's looking difference. Yeah. I'm, exactly. feel, I'm, I'm hearing you. Um, and that goes back to that, who you are thing, right? Yes. Yeah. That goes right back to that. Okay. So this is fantastic. Now, what about the people who, okay, those are the people who have no idea that they're doing it. Sometimes though, Gerald, we want to teach people. We're like, ah, you know, if only Steve could see it. Right. I need to teach Steve how to do this. But the minute you teach and pontificate and preach and stuff, that scares a lot of people away. Sometimes the listening changes when you become bossy boots. How do you go about that and quietly access people who might be a little more defensive? They might not be as self-aware. How do you step into those people and let them know that, hey, by the way, I love you. I've got your back. Uh, there's something that you need to know. I don't know. How do you say that? Exactly. Well, here's the thing. And this is why, you know, when I learned from conversational intelligence, the value and the importance that our conversations are much more chemical than they are verbal. And here's what I mean by that in regards to what you're just saying. If you're working with a team or you're working with someone and they're, let's say I call it the red zone, right? They're amygdala. They're part of their brain that is, you know, the deer in the headlights, fight, flight, freeze, or appease. Is, is in the way, then their brains are producing those negative neurochemicals and they're in a state of being a resistor or someone who's skeptical or wait and see. If I go up to that person who's a resistor and, a, and is skeptical and I try to cheer them on, I'll have a good talk with them and their brains are still producing a negative neurochemical, are they going to move? No, they're going to be like the dog that doesn't want to go for a walk. They're going to put their paws out and, you know, they're just not going to come along. But if I do something or say things about them that is inspiring or encouraging or to get them to think about themselves in a way that's positive, where their brains begin to produce these positive neurochemicals, then they go from resistor to skeptic to, hey, let me wait and see, or let me be an experimenter and see what this guy has to say. Maybe there's something here. And if I can win them over, now we can become co-creators to create a new thing that neither one of us thought about because now we're both working together. I did this with an organization once where the team was a little bit um, in a disarray, was dysfunctional for a little bit. And I had them leave their laptops in a room. I said, we're all going to get sticky notes. And I said, I want you to spend five minutes quietly and write down five or six things about 
a team that you used to be on that you loved. So while they're sitting there thinking about a group that they love, guess what their brains begin to do? Mm -hmm. Well, they're moving on, letting go, they're changing. Produce the positive neurochemicals. Yep. They're letting go of the other, what where they are right now. Their brains are producing these positive neurochemicals. And then I had the team get up individually and put the sticky notes on the whiteboard. And if anyone had the same word or, or, or concept, put it together. That created an infinity diagram. So the folks in the room could look and see, wait a minute, we actually have 80% more in common than yep. we have in difference. Mm-hmm. And what did that do? It changed the neurochemistry so that we can then begin to have the conversations and move the team forward. Where if I would have just come in and said, hey, guys, this is not working. We got to do this. We got to do that. It would not have gone well because I would not have changed the neurochemistry of how their brains were working. Also known as if you study for the exam with beer, write the exam with beer. (laughs) (laughs) uh gerald we only just got started and we have so much more to do will you come back on again soon and teach us more mentorship i would be happy to i would love this i I think this is really great i think it's um it's so simple it's one of those it's simple but it ain't easy moments but it is so simple in its notion and we can apply this to every aspect of our lives we can apply this to our work relationships our friendships our partnerships at home uh we can apply it to total strangers and if you've ever wanted to find some clarity on maybe what's next for you, a new career, a new job, new geography, because you're moving, you really have an opportunity to reset an awful lot of these bits and pieces. They're, they're exactly. like cur- bicep curls in the gym. You got to do the, you got to practice. You got to do your do reps, work. but the, um, but it is worth it. So I think that if if you're willing to dance with me, Gerald, I think that we, we could really dig into all these bits and pieces and, and share some stuff coming up over the next few weeks. That's not all right. Sounds great to me. I'd love to have you guys reach out to me. I'll be happy to reschedule and and keep having this conversation. Oh, fantastic. Don't let him talk you into buying sneakers, though. (laughs) Whatever you do, he does that to me all the time. Uh, It's a pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much for sharing time with us. You're welcome. This is The Shift Podcast. He's a disco dancer, all right. Andy, before we get started, we were chatting a little bit about uh, the most beautiful places in Canada. If you could pick one to throw into the list of all the places, I mean, I know Surrey is pretty beautiful. <laughs> is there a specific place for you that uh, that you would um, that you'd you'd add on to the list? You know what? I like the area up uh, around Prince Rupert. My brother mm-hmm. lives up in Terrace, BC, and every time I go up there. I'm just in awe of of um, you know Canada and just how beautiful it is coast to coast. But up there, they have just beautiful mountains and waterfalls. Everywhere you drive, it's just like a postcard. So I would say that drive between Prince Rupert and Terrace is um, one of the most beautiful places that I've definitely seen in, in Canada. Nice. Okay, there you go. What's yours? Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. What is the most beautiful place in Canada in your eyes? We want to know. Okay, it's uh, it's fall prep, garden prep. Now here in uh, in Ottawa, you know it's, it's pretty nice week this week. September, one of the most beautiful months here. In Alberta, 
it's uh, cold at nighttime. Everything's freezing at nighttime. There was some frost there the other day, and so anybody's garden is, is pretty much done. So it's a little bit different everywhere. Where are we going today for the garden prep? Yeah, well, you know, for people that have been gardening, now's really the time to do two things. Either if you're like on the West Coast or you live in an area where you can kind of squeeze out a fall garden, this is where you will start to prep it. Otherwise, what you want to do is go into your garden and clean it out because a lot of people will just leave, you know, the plants and let them just kind of like welt away uh, during the winter. But that can attract a lot of, of pests and, and disease that will go into your soil. So, you know, once the leaves are dried, like, for example, I have a trellis on the side of my house where I was growing a lot of beans and peas. They all dried up. So as soon as, like, there was a sunny day, it was nice out, you know, in fall weather, it's a good time to just, you know, get out your green bin, fill it all up, clean everything, um, and and just kind of Think about what you're going to do in the springtime. Usually, Shane, I will try to make a squeeze out a, a fall season, like grow some spinach and broccoli. But this year, um, I'm just kind of just I'm going to shut it all down because I had a really, really I went all in this year for gardening. So I think I kind of need a break. But, the you know, when t- people think of fall, you don't really think about gardening, but it can really prep you up for what you're going to do in the spring. For example, Everything is expensive now. If you want to get deals on fertilizer, now's the time. Also, if you need a barbecue, now is the best time to buy a barbecue from the stores, especially if you get the floor model because they're trying to get rid of it. So if you go to like a Home Depot and talk to the manager, this is what I do all the time is buy all the stuff like patio furniture in in the fall, but also garden supplies because they're going to be moving everything out. So it's a good time to kind of get that. If you are looking to add trees or shrubs, fall is actually a great time to do that because you need about six to eight weeks before frost. Um, that's a really good time for the roots to kind of develop. And then you can reap the benefits of having those those new trees or shrubs in the springtime. So, you know, fall is really a good time to kind of, you know, not forget about gardening, but actually prep for next year's garden and, um, clean up your, your current gardens and, and get all that kind of debris out of the way to prevent those diseases and bugs from getting uh, into your future gardens. Is that what happens? I mean, if you leave too much of the old biological last year's material leaves, like, I mean, I had a couple of tomatoes, for example, that, you know, fell off and I was like, meh, just leave them in there. Right. Like, is that a bad thing or, or is that something that I should really it- clean up? It depends. You know, if, if the plant has a disease on it, it, it can become problematic. You know, some people say, well, it's just like composting, right? But at the same time, what I suggest is you get those brown bags. You know, if you go to like Canadian Tire, you get those brown bags to put your organic waste like leaves. A lot of people, what they'll do is they'll collect the, the leaves and then use it if they're into like composting or if you're going to create like a new garden bed, you can put that on the base because basically it's just carbon when you think about it. And carbon is great for any kind of uh, uh, garden or, or if you're even making compost. So I like to try to collect leaves because you'll see people, you know, rake up their leaves. They might put it in their green bins and, and give it away or just, you know, throw it away. But it's actually a really valuable resource if you collect it. Because the issue I've always had with composting, Shane, is you have to continue those layers of putting like carbon. Then you put your greens. Then you might put a little bit of soil on top. So you got to put those layers. And and then you have to keep it wet. So I've always struggled with composting. But I know from the pros out there, they love to collect all the leaves. They'll come even to their neighbors like, oh, 
can I take your leaves? And then they'll just put it into a brown paper bag, store it in the shed. And then when they need that carbon, they can add it to their gardens or their compost uh, in the future. So I'm trying to be more mindful of that because every time I need some dry leaves, I, you know, I never have it. But in the fall, it's everywhere and everyone's trying to get rid of it, especially if you know a neighbor or somebody has a big tree and all those leaves are coming down. Now's the time to collect it. And I, there's even groups online that are people you know, on the hunt for, for the dry leaves. So collect it, give it away, or you can use it in your compost. Lots of different things you can do with it. Uh, it is so interesting um, from place to place how composting works and what gets composted. That's another thing. I mean, we hear these stats about recycling, right? Like 90% of the stuff that goes in the recycle bin goes to the dump and actually doesn't, or goes into an incinerator, <laughs> Yeah, even worse. Um, but, which is which is interesting. I And the reason why I say this is I saw a garbage can the other day that was one of those sort of three-hole garbage cans where it had organics, recyclables, like cans and bottles, and, and trash. And I went to put my trash in, and I looked inside, and it was just all one bin. There was not three bins. Oh, it was wow. just one bin, right? And I that always disappointing. Um, but every, every place does deal with it differently, so cater that to your, to your neighborhood. When I lived, I mean, it was 20 years ago now that I lived in St. Catharines, Ontario. And they called it the Garden City for a reason because it just was so beautiful with gardens everywhere. And back then, anyway, I, I lived there for a little over a year. Back then, it was basically free compost, right? Because they had those organics programs 20 years ago that yeah. they would take all that stuff and they would compost it. And then as a citizen with your address, you couldn't, not anybody could just go there, but you could go and get a certain amount of, of dirt. And so yeah. everybody's garden was amazing. The gardens on the side of the highway were incredible. Everybody does it a little bit differently. Some definitely better than others. Here in Ottawa, it has to be in one of those paper bags. You can't just do the big green bin. In Alberta, it's just a big green bin. You just throw everything in it. And you can throw kitty litter in there. You can throw the dog poop in there. You can put everything you want, paper, like as long as it's like paper towel and stuff like that. So what have you learned with that? Is it Has it changed at all from how you used to do it to how it is today where you are? Well, you remember that gadget that we kind of talked about uh, a while mm. back, the food cycler, yeah, where it takes your, your kitchen scraps and then it, it decompresses it and turns it into organic waste. And what this company was saying is you could use that like your eggshells, your coffee grounds, and you can compress it or basically um, dehydrate it. It grinds it up, puts it, it almost looks like soil shade. And so I got this uh, machine way back, I think in the spring. And I've been collecting all of this waste in, in, a, in a tote. Now, the thing that it works is this stuff doesn't have that, the nutrients that your plants need right away. It needs worms. It needs the worms to go in there and eat it up. And then it'll make, um, you know, they basically worms poop it out. And that's the nutrients that the, the plants use. So I have been collecting this stuff, but I, I just haven't been able to get worms. But I've been collecting a lot of it. And now that fall has hit. I'm like, I'm going to put all of this into the into the soil once I get rid of all the plants, kind of mix it up because I know that soil has lots of worms in it. And it says it takes about six to eight weeks for the nutrients to come out of it. But now it's going to have all the winter. So I was thinking, I was thinking about doing this, Shane, is say I have two uh, garden beds. One of them I put the fertilizer in and the other one I don't, the organic fertilizer for all the kitchen scraps. The other one I just leave as is. And I was curious if I put the same plants in it, kind of like an A-B test, will like one do better than the other? So 
I think it'll be a, a good little experiment because I've only had this um, this food cycler machine for a little over a year now. But man, the amount that I have collected, it's it's crazy. And to think that, you know, if this works, if I can get enough worms, this is like free like nutrients, free fertilizer for all the different plants. So it's kind of like a perfect like full circle where I'm growing all these this food and then I use those kitchen scraps to then become nutrients for growing more food. It's like the dream come true. I just don't know if it would work really good. And that's why I want to kind of do that little experiment to see if it indeed does like add nutrients to the plants and I could visually see a difference. I think that would be a great experience to, to run. And that's what I'm going to do this year. Handy Andy's worm farm. Tell you, it's a thing. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Gonna, I, I told you, gonna I'm going to be the guy where you're like, hey, I need some worms. And they'll be like, I know a guy, Handy Andy. He, he just go into his backyard. He's got worms. No. Uh, okay. Uh, here's a text. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, are some leaves better than others? Uh, that's a good question. I, yeah, I, think, I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know the answer. I, th- I just know that everything turns back to carbon. And when you are trying to, you know, put nutrients into your soil or making a compost, you need that layer of carbon and then you put, you know, soil in. Like I've, I've struggled. I'll be honest with you. I'm, I'm one of these days I hope to get good at composting, but I've watched a lot of YouTube videos and it's an Mm -hmm. art, you know, and you have, and it requires maintenance because you have to keep it moist, not too moist, not too wet, but just enough so that you can keep that, that cycle going. And that's where I've always kind of messed up on but i like to collect the leaves I, I don't know if some leaves are better than others but it all turns to carbon at the end of the day we can always find out do a little research that's what handy eddie likes to do anyway so why not we'll dig into it um gutters we only have a quick minute here if you want to get into the gutters yeah uh this is a really good time to start cleaning your gutters because i've learned the hard way where i forgot to do this and what happens is once it starts to freeze you can get what's called an ice dam because the water has nowhere to go, so it collects, it freezes, it causes a lot of weight, and then you'll, you'll notice your gutters will start to hang or sag because of that. So now is the good time, depending, it depends if you can DIY this or not, but it's a good time to clean your gutters. But a lot of people, you know, will make the mistake and get injured because they're not putting safety first when it comes to getting onto the roof. I live in a rancher house, so it's really easy to go up there. So I highly recommend if you haven't thought about your gutters, now's the time before winter comes that you want to get it cleaned either professionally or as a DIY. It's just manual work, but it pays off and prevents those ice dams. Handy Andy Barrar is in Surrey, BC. AI Music Andy on Spotify. I suppose it is music. They provide um, entertainment and access to it. But, I mean, the old the old compass feels a little weird on that one in the heart, you know? Yeah, well, you know, artists and both, you know, the, the music platforms are kind of looking at AI and trying to figure out you know, what what kind of relationship are we going to have with AI music? Because it's out there. There is so much music that is being made with AI. And some of it's pretty good, Shane. So good that people actually want to listen to it on Spotify. So Spotify has to kind of have a position on how they're going to deal with this AI music. And essentially, they've put it into three buckets of AI use in music. One is tools like like everyone knows, auto-tune. That's kind of a, an AI because you don't have to have a perfect pitch, 
but it could take you and your voice, which might be a little flat, and just kind of bring it up. And of course, it came, it all started, I, I believe it was Cher with her song, Do You Believe? What, what was that, like the late 90s? Yeah, 1999, 2000. That song, uh, 98, that one was, um, that wasn't the first use of, of autotune. It had been around for a lot longer. That was the first time that basically somebody turned it up to 100 and yeah. didn't hide it because it was always like one of those secret tools before yeah. that. But that was the first time where they were like, eh, we don't care. Turn it up all the way. Yeah, I actually had that plug-in. I used to play around with it all the time when it was uh, super hot. So, so that can be like considered one use of AI. The other way uh, bucket that Spotify has looked at AI is when it mimics artists. And this is where they draw the line. This is said, this is what we're not going to allow for music that mimics artists without the artist's permission. Because earlier this year, there was a song that a producer named Ghostwriter perfect name for what he's doing ghostwriter created the song with the weekend and drake i think the song was called heart of my sleeve and everybody loved it they thought it was a great they thought it first of all it it was drake and um weekend that's what everyone believed but then it turned out that it was ai music that producer tried to get it to win a or nominate it for a grammy i don't think they they accepted it but that just shows you that there is going to be good music out there that's been created through the use of AI. Now, what Spotify does say, the, the kind of AI that they are going to allow is the kind of middle ground where music is created by AI, but it was clearly influenced by an existing artist, but they did not directly impersonate them. And that's the kind of music that Spotify says they will allow. So I think what you're going to see is, you know, there's always been bedroom producers, you know, where they'll make the music in their bedroom with their laptop. I think what you're going to see is a new category of producers, these AI producers, where they'll take their favorite artists and maybe get inspired by that artist to create some kind of music. But the thing is, Shane, it all comes down to the AI itself and the, the data points or the material that was used to create that. Because Spotify doesn't want these AI algorithms and these companies to use their database to then create future music with their database. So it's going to be very, very interesting, but AI music is a thing. It's all over YouTube. You can see like new songs by Elvis Presley that people have created with AI music mm -hmm. or Johnny Cash. It's interesting, um, but um, the it'll Barbie be, Girl song by Johnny yeah, Cash. It's pretty yeah. good. I, I um, here's the thing. I, you know what I think it is. I mean, AI music is going to be around for sure, but if all of the contract negotiations that go on and if there's been a lot of fights between Spotify, because Spotify had a, the biggest audience before they got permission to use the songs in a lot of countries, as there have been an awful lot of fights over rights of things, I think this is leverage because what they're, what they're doing is they're creating competition for a bunch of existing artists. They say, well, you can't copy it, but we're going to create competition, right? And that competition does not go to the record labels. That is taking money out of the record labels' pockets, which is, I mean, they've been fighting about stuff constantly. Yeah. So that, to me, that's what it is. Now, if you're an artist and you're on Spotify, that's your bread and butter. And to those artists and now they're going to have more bread and butter who do you get in bed with i don't know uh handy andy Barrar is here uh 15 seconds or less brand new iphones are overheating we've only got a, a short answer please yeah so it looks like it's certain apps like instagram uber some of these apps they're going to roll the updates but if your iphone 15 is overheating it's likely because of those apps but they have an ios 17 update that should fix everything in the very near future 
Running the processors too hard, friends. That's what they're doing. HandyAndyMedia.com. Thank you so much for being here, brother. Thanks, Shane. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? Texting your thoughts, these stories that might make you ponder. Ryan O'Donnell, are we talking about the view uh, from the Lego store, or what's your favorite place? You don't drive, so it's not like you go places so freely. I have, I have two. I have two. Uh, first is the Johnston Canyon, just outside mm-hmm. of Banff, kind of in between Banff and Lake Louise. It's a hike that anybody can do. You don't need insane gear to do it. It's all... It's like a walking path, really. There's a whole... Yeah, but you just walk through this cliff canyon with waterfalls and like turquoise blue water it's absolutely stunning and you can go halfway or you can go the full way and at the end there's like tar pits it's an unbelievable spot that has been completely ruined by people taking pictures uh and flooding the paths and uh my favorite most beautiful place in the country is downtown quebec city Walking through the old hmm. streets of Quebec City, the cobblestones. cobblestone streets, the old cathedrals, the citadel, the walls. It is the only walled city in all of North America that still hmm. actually has the wall. And it is um, it's very underrated. It's like, you, of course, yeah, you go to Montreal or Toronto. But if you're in Quebec, I highly recommend you take a trip up there. Just, uh, just bring a little bit of extra cash because it's very expensive and everywhere expects a tip everywhere mm. okay uh niagara falls gotta throw that in there too yep one of my favorite places i cannot go to anywhere in the niagara peninsula without going to niagara falls it's my favorite niagara on the lake though also anyway the, the ids keep coming what is yours 877-399-9898 beautiful place in canada in your eyes are you okay with refunds Refunds. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Can I get a refund there. on that answer? Um, <laughs> yeah. I I mean, refunds, it depends on the process. I've been, last week, I, I made a joke about how Ticketmaster still owes me like 200 bucks for tickets from a show that got canceled during COVID. And I messaged with a Ticketmaster person finally. And then they said, actually, we issued this refund. It's your bank's problem. Um, I don't have any like history of that transaction happening. And so I've kind of given up on getting that money back, which sucks. Mm. On the other hand, though, currently a part of my headphones broke that I use for gaming and a little (gasps) piece broke. Are you okay? No, they're stupid expensive and they're less than a year old. I was very upset. Uh, I emailed the people. I'm like, hey, this part of the headset is fine. It's just this one thing. Can you just ship me a new one? And they were just like, yep, here you go. Done. Didn't even ask for a receipt or anything. So that, that's pretty sweet. That's good. That's good service. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, yeah. Refunds, as long as people aren't reckless with it. I mean, some people take full advantage of refunds, right? They will go and they'll just, they'll use a, uh, I've seen it. I've seen it standing in line at Costco. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had a friend of mine, even better story. They have a friend of mine who used to work at Costco. And she used to say the number one uh, week for TV sales was the week before Super Bowl. And the number one week for TV returns is the week after Super Bowl. And people will go in and they buy the biggest TV they can get 
throw their party, pack it up back in the box, and return it. Like renting it. <laughs> I, that's one way to do it. Mm-hmm. She also used to say that because of the return policy, they used to see uh, people come in before May long weekend and buy patio furniture, mm-hmm. use it all summer, and return it after Labor Day long weekend. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a bold play. That's a bold. Yeah, bold. that to me is yeah. taking. I mean, don't get me wrong; these are massive companies. They can afford it. They don't care. Yeah. But they, um, you know, there's there's that's there's legitimate scummy. use of refunds, and then there's taking advantage of. Well, this yeah, one could be much. legitimate. I'll say, a pair of passengers who took a very long flight are demanding a refund. And to be fair, it was a pretty brutal flight. And it wasn't because of turbulence or someone hogging the armrest. They say they were seated next to a passenger with a smelly dog. So about halfway through the 13-hour flight, the couple alleges the dog started passing gas and was breathing heavily. What's more, the man says it was taken over his leg room and drooling on his bare legs. He was wearing shorts. What? Yeah, uh, The couple didn't want to leave their premium economy seats, but eventually they did decide to move. They had had enough. Did they travel with my Harlow? <laughs> Her breath when she gets breathing heavy? Oh, man, it'll make your eyes water. Um, okay, that's from Fox 35. They didn't want to leave their premium economy seats. Uh, but they did 13-hour flight, Singapore to Paris. Uh, Gil Press told Insider she was determined to get some sort of compensation after she and her husband, Warren Press, dealt with the stinky dog. Now, do you think they should have gotten compensation for that? I mean, the airline's job is to deliver you safely to your destination. Hmm. And if you're in premium economy, you're supposed to get a little extra customer service up there. But if you're in the most high-end of economy economy and some rich person shows up, with their two toddlers that are jumping up and down on their big comfy seats. They're as entitled to be there as you are. Right? Yeah, like they're there. Sure they got a refund. I think okay, maybe not a refund, but I would be here's what I would do in the situation. A farting dog that is drooling on me is disgusting. For 13 hours, that is that is awful. I would leave the premium seats if i had to in that case no, i would talk but, to the dog owner and ask them to move the person with the dog but clearly that didn't happen on this flight and so i would probably i don't know if this is like a full-on refund worth but it's definitely like hey you should give me 50 percent off my next next flight or ensure that i'm not sitting next to a stinky dog next time hmm What's the difference between a stinky dog, stinky person? On my flight to uh, Toronto last week, there was nobody sitting next to me. Nobody. Wow, lucky. The you. last minute, well, Porter only has two and two seats on their jets, so there's right. no middle seat, which is my favorite part. And uh, at the last minute, they moved a dude from the back. I mean, this guy was enormous. He was a big dude. He had to be about six six, six seven, probably three hundred pounds, but three hundred pounds of like fit. He was a big fella. And so they moved because I was in the exit row. They moved and be with me because he couldn't fit in the seat. So I got it. No big deal. But I got to tell you, he did not smell good. Like I was like trying to sleep and I kind of put my, my jacket over my face. So I didn't have to smell it. But he didn't smell good. Like I'm pretty sure he had been up for a day or two. And um, and uh, most of those couple of days were probably spent in a bar. So I was fine, but they moved a dude next to me. But you know what? He was huge. He needed a, the extra room. Ah, oh, nice guy. 
His name was Colin, by the way. And so I'm not asking for a refund because of that. So, I mean, everyone's trying to get to where they go. Anyway, uh, they asked for a refund. They did get one. After months of emailing Singapore Airlines, the New Zealand couple said they received about $1,410, which they plan to donate to an organization that matches vision-impaired people with service dogs, which I don't understand that. I mean, that's a nice gesture, but somebody who's visually impaired is going to take their service dog on an airplane. Which this was just... a service dog, but it right. was a maybe they're like being elitist about what type of service dog. the The dog looked like a, a mix of a Rottweiler and a pit bull, um, which are like dogs that have stigmas around them, uh, for sure. But it looked like a cute. Like honestly, I thought the dog was pretty cute from the picture. But but it, I, I, I don't understand how they get any further ahead. Yeah. I mean, it's nice that they ask for a refund and then they're going to donate it to service dog sure absolutely what a great cause but isn't that just actually helping create more bad breath dogs sitting on airplanes i mean so they're like it doesn't make sense to me so either to me as i hear that is it one of the things that maybe their opinion changed they're like uh yeah we found out later so we're just going to donate the money like or did they i don't know it's yeah see it seems like way too much work for a pretty unremarkable ending to the story this, yeah. you know it's well, and i would have principles yeah the principles just like you instead of having to go through the refund this could just be your uh flight from hell story that you tell people at a cocktail party over christmas you know there's nothing yeah. wrong with having those kinds of stories just yeah. take that and go take that and run with I it i get that i get that still all it does is perpetuate stinky dogs on planes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, for our next story here, let's just take this first clip completely out of context. So long, dental plan. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. Bullseye. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Carl. Now I've lost my train of thought. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. Dental plan. Lisa needs braces. If we give up our dental plan, I'll have to pay for Lisa's braces. Are you okay with <laughs> uh, psychedelic Simpsons clips, apparently? Dental plan. Uh, dentists. Are you okay with dentists? Yeah, I've got a good dentist. I'm lucky. I've been going to the same dentist for my entire life. Uh, so that's nice. I still have a picture of me when like at the office, like with my little SpongeBob SquarePants t-shirt and lost my first tooth, you know, sticker. Uh, and yeah, they're really great there. Uh, and you know, it's wild. I never used to floss. I was a guy who lied about flossing. And then I didn't go to the Everybody dentist during COVID. Everybody lies about flossing, just so you know. Yeah. I know everybody does. I went after not going during COVID for ages and it was the worst three hours of my life. They, my gums were on fire. They got rid of all the plaque. And ever since that appointment, I floss twice a day and it, they're not joking. They're serious when they say floss because it does make a difference. It's worth the effort. I swear. Uh, I do both. I floss and then I just lie about how much I floss like a normal person does. Yeah normally yeah normal people lie about flossing that's what we do you know when you say that oh i floss yes sir doctor dentist man woman they're like mm-hmm, clearly 
There's half a sandwich between your teeth. A dentist can help keep your teeth healthy and clean, but none of them can regrow teeth you lost. Or can they? A team of scientists led by a Japanese pharmaceutical startup are getting to set to start human trials on a new drug that has successfully grown new teeth in animal test subjects. Seriously. Torgum Biopharma is slated to begin clinical trials in July of next year after it succeeded growing new teeth in mice five years ago. Uh, the doctor there, a lead researcher on the project, said in the head of dentistry and oral surgery department at the Medical Research Institute of Catano Hospital, says the idea of growing new teeth is every dentist's dream. If that's what dentists dream about, I do not <laughs> want to be a dentist. In this research, which he's been conducting at Kyoto University since 2005, uh, Takahashi learned of a particular gene in mice that affects the growth of their teeth. The antibody for this gene is called USAG1 can help stimulate tooth growth if it is suppressed. And scientists have been working to develop a neutralizing antibody medicine that is able to block USAG1. Now, his team has been testing the theory that blocking this protein could cause you to grow more teeth. Now, testing in turn to healthy adult humans eventually, and if all goes well, the team plans to hold a clinical trial for the drug from 2025 for children between 2 and 6 years old with anodontia a rare genetic disorder that results in the absence of six or more baby teeth or adult teeth. According to the Japan Times, the children involved in the clinical trial will be injected with one dose of the drug and see if it induces teeth growth. That's it. If successful, the medicine could be available for regulatory approval by 2030. If you get a tooth knocked out, you get a shot. Your body could grow a tooth back. I hope it grows in your mouth. Yeah, see... Okay, if you get the shot, is there a way that they can confirm that they can, like, you know, localize the shot? So I lost my, uh, I don't know what any of my teeth are called. I lost a molar. They inject it where the molar is, the molar grows there. Or is it like, all right, you're going to get it in the arm, and then six months later, all of my teeth fall out because I just grow a whole new set of teeth? That, I feel like this is one of those scientific studies where the outcome of it could be absolutely life-changing for millions of people, but they have to get it 100% right, or it's going mm. to be an awful Well, if you have disaster. a tooth that comes out of your forehead, you're like, oh, I got a pimple. And you're like, oh, nope, it's an incisor. Oh, it's an incisor. Oh, you've got it. Now you're a unicorn. Or, mm, <laughs> like uh, it's, good point. It could get nasty. But it see, this is the thing for me. In today's world of dental implants and all the things they can do, veneers... Do they really think that growing a tooth, some snaggletooth thing, somewhere in your mouth hole is actually going to satisfy people's needs and wants to be able to have an extra tooth? Because do you want an extra tooth or do you want a tooth that looks good? And I would say in today's society, because vanity is king, people are far more concerned about having a tooth that looks good than actually mm -hmm. having a tooth. Now, dentists would love this because... Once you have veneers, there's not a lot left to fix, or those um, those oh, bolting teeth. teeth. Oh, the yeah. Turkish teeth where they uh, they're made of uh, they're made of porcelain, so they never stain. They're just constantly mm. way too white and really creepy to look at. Isn't that funny though? When someone gets the new veneers and they smile, and you're like, Ooh, "My chicklets. eyes!" Yeah, it's like it's like they're so big, so bright. Yeah. Like this Cheshire cat. I was like, "What did you do to your face?" Oh, well. 
I um I don't know. I I I like nice teeth. I don't. I mean, I get told I have nice teeth. I don't really like my teeth, but I also went through a lot with braces and stuff. So I sort of expect them to be perfect, and they're far from it. I don't know. Um, I could be a human narwhal, says Trucker Dan. Catherine says, "Be Frankentooth." <laughs> yeah, and uh, also says dentists fart too, just like the service dog on the airplane. And sometimes, friends. That's where Are You Okay With goes. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 